Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about You Only Live Twice. Starring Sean Connery, Mia Hama, Akiko Wakabayashi, Tetsuro Tamba, and Donald Pleasance. Directed by Lewis Gilbert, this is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. This is Arnie, and I only live twice, and in my second life, I think men will always come first, and women come second. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are, back to normal, finally, with Sean Connery in the role of James Bond. For our fifth adventure with 007. Has it only been five? In our very first podcast, I said that I watched all of these in high school in this big marathon and that they all blurred together and I couldn't remember which was which. Well, now I'm watching them just two a week and I'm still having them all blurred together. (laughs) They're just all so similar. Well, there's been this quiet evolution here. I do feel like Thunderball and Dr. No feel of one piece. From Russia with Love is its entirely own thing, but I gotta say, we're getting back into Goldfinger territory here with You Only Live Twice. We're getting into the wacky James Bond, the sexy, tongue-in-cheek, what I think is a real true Bond movie. Yeah, it has a lot of the elements of Goldfinger, certainly. It has the light touch to it that Goldfinger had, and it was going for the same kind of playfulness, I thought, as well, that Thunderball tried very hard to get some of and just missed. I think this one's back on track, quote-unquote, in the Goldfinger track. Oddly enough, these are newbies taking the helm here. Lewis Gilbert had not directed a Bond movie before. He will direct future ones we're going to talk about, but he just had a big hit with Alfie, a Michael Caine comedy. And Roald Dahl wrote the screenplay. One of my childhood heroes, the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, Big Friendly Giant, Fantastic Mr. Fox. He wrote this adaptation of the Ian Fleming novel. Well, sort of. He used the title. And he, he, <laughs> he took it in a different place, yes. It was in Japan, and that's pretty much where it began and ended. They told him he can throw out the entire book and do what he wanted, but they have to have three girls, and they have to do this and that, and they just threw everything they possibly could into this thing and hope it stuck. I love the trivia that Roald Dahl wrote this movie, because all three of us probably know him first from Charlie the Chocolate Factory. and. Yeah. It's kind of funny that if you think about it, Ian Fleming also wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, another childhood favorite. Not one of mine. I know a lot of people did enjoy that. So the fact that Roald Dahl came in to write an adaption or the movie version, I should probably say, of a Ian Fleming book, it seems strangely appropriate considering these two guys with children's literature. They were friends that actually brought them together, Brock. Ian Fleming and Roald Dahl were friends because, yes, Fleming had wrote Chitty Chitty and Dahl had begun writing his career 
that's why they actually went to the guy. They thought that this would be someone that knew what Ian Fleming wanted. Oops! <laughs> As you said, I don't think this has much to do with the novel. We won't know. This is one of the last novels written, and so we won't get it in Books and Nachos, where we're reviewing all the Ian Fleming novels, till almost the end. But, yeah, it's its own thing. So, Arnie, why don't you tell us what Roald Dahl cooked up here with your plot summary? All right, well, I was a little shocked in the opening. We don't start with James Bond. Instead, we start with a space capsule and an astronaut doing a spacewalk when, like a whale-eating fish, a larger rocket comes in and engulfs the small capsule. There's always a bigger rocket. The Americans are sure it's the Russians and are ready to declare war, but the Russians deny any knowledge of the attack, so leave it to the British to find peace. They send 007, who's presumed dead by the world due to a hoax set up by MI6, and he goes to Japan to investigate. MI6 believes the culprit is not the Russians, but Spectre, so Bond hooks up with the head of the Japanese Secret Service, Tiger Tanaka. Several assassination attempts are launched against Bond, and Bond is captured by Spectre agent Helga Brandt, but he escapes and discovers rocket fuel for Ernst Blofeld, head of Spectre, who's holed up inside a secret base in a volcano. More assassination attempts are launched on Bond, and to hide him, Tanaka has him made up in Japanese garb, and marry a woman. Bond wants to marry Aki, his first contact in Japan, but she's murdered by a Spectre assassin, so Tanaka has Bond marry Kissy, one of his agents who is more chaste than Aki, much to Bond's chagrin on their wedding night. While Blofeld was hired by the Chinese to cause a war between the U.S. and Russia, and by also capturing some Russian cosmonauts in space, it's almost a reality as both Russia and the USA are about to launch nuclear missiles, the U.S. will fire if their next space mission is intercepted. But Bond and a team of Tiger's ninjas attack the volcano base. Bond is captured and faces off against Blofeld, but manages to rest free and destroy Blofeld's giant spaceship before it can eat another USA rocket, averting the war. The ninjas and Bond fight off Spectre's men, but Blofeld escapes, activating the base's self-destruct. Bond and Tanaka escape, with Bond and his wife Kissy relaxing in a life raft when a submarine emerges from the water to rescue the two. Gosh, Arnie, when you say it that way, this movie sounds silly. (laughs) 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 I mean, really, spaceships and ninjas. Oh, my. It certainly does have a lot of different elements all over the place. What are you talking about? This has just gotten me to get off my butt and write my screenplay, Space Ninja. (laughs) (laughs) Starring Ryan Reynolds, I hope. I do, too, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You better start pouring the sake now. Yes. This was very topical. You got to say the space race, this movie came out summer 1967. That had dominated the entire decade. We were still two years before arriving at the moon. This was on everyone's mind. Russia versus the U.S. Who was going to conquer the new frontier? Who was going to conquer outer space? When we start with the going from the classic Bond gun barrel sequence into outer space capsules, I'm applauding already. I'm super psyched. You're absolutely right. This plot by Roald Dahl certainly was affected by the space race. And I'm watching this, and when we open up on the space capsule, you know, it looks pretty good. The print is good, and I'm instantly intrigued. I was intrigued to the point, what, two minutes into the movie, faster than I was at all during Thunderball. It was a great way to open up this movie. You know, I... Felt the effects were great for the time, whatever, I wasn't going to harp on them, but I at first thought I was seeing the one, I guess we're going to get to it later again, these all merged together, with the guy with the silver teeth and Roger Moore. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, we're going to get to that one. We'll be there. And then kind of just was like, is James Bond in space? We always start with James Bond. I was a little disappointed that they didn't start with James Bond and start with his escapade pre-credits. And then third, when the big ship comes in and eats the little ship, that's when the effects go from good to just plain silly. It's a silly concept. Awesome! You mean awesome, right? I mean, it's a silly concept. It's a silly execution. It's a silly notion. What the hell? I'm applauding. I love it. What's better than a space capsule? A UFO eating a space capsule. (laughs) A call came flooding back to me. You know, you only live twice. I remember Japan. But when this came on, I remembered thinking as a child when I first saw this, this was one of my favorites. This is the one that I really, really dug. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that we're starting right here in space. Arnie, it is kind of silly. But I'm a steward. It's silly awesome. Because it goes right into it and gets me instantly hooked. And we're getting right off the bat that this is not Thunderball. We're back to having some fun here with James Bond. Strangely, though, and I like the way you pointed this out, Arnie, the opening pre-credit sequence has a direct link to the rest of the movie, which is not very typical. And when they do that, I don't really like it as much as when there's not. The minor link, I'm fine with. But this one, there's a direct link because they kill Bond at the end of this and the spaceship comes back and factors majorly into the plot. See, I wish, honestly, that they'd start with the death of James Bond, which is kind of what I expected. I knew you only live twice. I remember there was one where he's pseudo-dead at the beginning and they have a funeral. This wasn't how I remembered it, but maybe this happens again. But I kind of just wish they would have started with the gun barrel sequence, James Bond is killed, and then... You know, the music, the credits, then take us to space with the actual plot. That would have been a much better use of suspense. I think that would have been a preferable edit to the way they did it. Rather than starting with this, I'm sure in the 60s people were like, Oh, a big spaceship. I'm sitting here, though, just like, can we get to Bond? I at least prefer it when the bad special effects are earthbound. Maybe you're just a stickler for formula here. You don't want it to vary in any way from what you've seen before. But I like everything about this setup. I like starting in space. I like the fact that the Brits are kind of chastising both the U.S. and the Russians by saying, no, 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 guys, it's not each other here. There's something going on in the Sea of Japan, and our man in Hong Kong is on it, and then we get to Bond. I like the delayed gratification of seeing their man in Hong Kong (laughs) busy bedding a woman, of course. That's where we find Bond in bed at the start of this. This, more than any other scene when Bond gets shot up in the Murphy bed, is one of those things I have as a memory as a child And this is one of those that I have burned on my brain of remembering sitting there in my mom's bed watching this scene. And so shooting Bond in the bed and then seeing him emerge from the Sphinx-like mummy capsule thingy underneath the water is one of those classic moments to me in James Bond because of that reason. But it was traumatic at the time. I mean, I'm with you, Brock. I remembered him getting shot up in this bed, and I was too young to have been in on the joke. I thought they had just killed James Bond in the opening. I wouldn't have guessed what anybody of a mature age could have assumed that this was all just a ruse. I thought they had really just killed the guy. I thought maybe that meant Roger Moore was going to step in here. So at the end of this whole sequence of Bond being dead, it comes to the first time that we see M and Moneypenny on location with the mobile MI6 base. 
this become up later in the series as well. This is the first time they're on a submarine in a pretty okay set. I thought it was a clever idea to have them in the submarine. I totally forgot that. And I liked the consistency of throwing the hat on the coat rack, letting us know we're right back in the office. Why the whole death hoax? I didn't feel that was adequately explained. You're right. It was not adequately explained. (laughs) But the reason they give is that they're breathing down his neck and Bond needs room to actually investigate. Yeah, I got that. Who was breathing down his neck? Spectre. Okay. So later on when Blofeld's underlings are like, he's dead, it was specifically to throw them a loop. Why not throw 006 in to pick up where 007 left off if everybody's on 007's heels? No one cares about 006. We all know this. (laughs) 006 is about as cool as number two is in Spectre. You know, they're going to get killed. They're never going to solve the mission. It's all about Blofeld and Bond. I will say this much. I wasn't quite sure who was in on it. The girl in bed is in on it. Were the men that ran in and machine gunned it also in on it? I feel like someone needed to not be in on it in order to report its validity. You're hitting on something that is a big issue with the movie. While all these sequences that we're talking about, like we all like the fact that, well, two of us, I think, like the fact that they try to kill Bond the way they did in the whole thing, the logic starts to seep in pretty quick of what's going on. The plot holes in this, the things they glance over quickly to keep the plot moving, you notice them quicker than you did with Goldfinger. And you're absolutely right. I have no idea if still if the gunmen were in on it or not. I have no idea if that was live rounds or not. You're hitting on something right off the bat that I think is an issue with the movie. It would have been nice if they had had maybe a villain that killed him, came back later. I think I would have liked that. They were still in Asia. They could have had a villain from Hong Kong pop up on the Spectre Island at the end of this. I feel like there would have been ways to tie into this. But yeah, this movie is not about that. And I do feel bad for you, Arnie, because I know that you're a stickler for logic and cohesion. And this is not going to be one of those bonds. I feel bad for me, too. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what, Brock? It's not a problem for me. I'm usually the guy that is champion script and make things pay out and characters and all of this. I am loving the ride that we go on and you only live twice. This thing moves like crazy. It invents so many new concepts that are fun and they execute them well because they have the budget. I'm not sure this is anything more than a remake of Dr. No, but they have the budget now to make the scary island fun and where they take this movie it's crazy and I love it. I never stop to ask why because I'm having too much fun to care. You know, it's really funny you should say that because the best Bond films are just like that. You have that kind of fun aspect going the whole thing. It moves at a pace. You enjoy the different sequences. But there are those Bond movies for me that while I'm certainly enjoying what I'm watching, Stuart, I can't turn off my brain completely. And this one is one of them for me. Like later in the movie, we don't even hear Kissy Suzuki's name. At all. No. We have no idea what her freaking <laughs> name is. I'm thinking to myself, did I just miss her name? And so I rewound it. And they don't say it ever. And so that kind of thing bothers me while I'm watching it. I'm like, I know she's Kissy Suzuki. She's a famous Bond girl. But someone like Arnie probably has no idea what her name is. And that's not right. There's a way to do it that I shouldn't notice it like in Goldfinger. No doubt about it. The sugar rush comes down before they get to the end credits. I do feel like I have so much fun, I don't care, until maybe the last reel of the movie, and then I'm like, but yes, (laughs) there are problems with the end that are logistical, that probably are a deficit. But for the most part, anything you're going to bring up, Arnie, I'm just going to preface it now as saying why and this doesn't work and this bugs you, it's probably not going to bug me. I got a bulletproof vest on with these illogical moves because this thing is fun. Here's the thing. It was 
pretty much in the beginning. I had a slow time getting into this movie. I really did. The first, say, 15 minutes of the film, I was really thinking we were in for another Thunderball, and I was dreading it. But once we get to Japan, what's the thing that really got me with From Russia With Love? The motivations, the mysteries. Here, he's introduced to all these various Japanese agents, and you don't know who's really on his side, if people are who they say they are, people are trying the code words, his contacts being knifed in the back. This really drew me in, and from that point on, I was with this movie. My nitpicks were specifically about the beginning, and then later on about the end. Okay, cool. Good. Yeah, I agree with you. We really do not know who his allies and who his henchmen villains are for quite a while here. At some point, I was sure that the white guy in the kimono had to be a bad guy, right? I mean, just look at him. Anytime you have a white guy in a kimono, that equals villain to me. I was so shocked when he actually turned out to be a World War II hero that dies after giving one bit of information in the one scene he's in. I loved that scene, and I forgot about that scene walking into this movie this time, because I've only seen this movie a couple of times previous. And when he dies with a knife in the back of the wall mid-sentence, I thought it played so well. And what a great sequence. Agreed. No complaints here. I love how he just stops mid-sentence and you, the audience member, and James Bond are both wondering what the hell is going on. And then Bond bursts through the wall there. Yeah, totally in it. And I love that Bond pulls a gun on him when he walks in the room, too. He's not trusted with him. hits him in the leg to make sure he is who he is. That whole thing felt like a, more like a spy interaction than we've seen... In the last movie, anyway, uh, Thunderball, I mean, not Casino Royale. It really felt like a real good reminder that Bond is a spy. He's business first. Agreed. But my problem with Thunderball was that the only thing I cared about were the big action set pieces. Here, the little moments count, too. Here, every scene has something that I'm enjoying. And I really do credit Dahl with this script. And so, if it doesn't all quite tie together at the end, who cares? Me. <laughs> well, <laughs> after that scene... He goes into Osato Corporation, starts sneaking around, and man, do I love that brutal fight with that guy, with the couch and through the walls and up and down. Loved that choreography, loved the fight. Really great way to keep the pace moving of this movie and keep the questions being raised. Yeah, maybe unlike any of the previous Bond movies, some of the fight choreography is more believable here. That Robert Shaw one was good, but a lot of times with underlings, with henchmen, feel stagey. I'm thinking about Dr. No. Some of those goons he slaps around wasn't very gratifying. Here, almost everyone that Bond faces is a good villain. Each movie, these improve. And maybe it's the technology. I credited Connery with it in a previous one, but... Yeah, there's some good fight choreography, fight staging, good acting, good stunts. 100%, each movie improves upon the previous in this way. They need to up the ante. This is a sequel. This is a part five. Think where we've been in some other part fives, right? (laughs) True. Yes. You know, another thing that's helping, too, is just a personal bias. I like where we're set in the story. We're kind of getting in a rut here. This is the first movie that doesn't have a moment set off the coast of Florida. It's refreshing that we're on the other side of the world here. I like Japan. I visited Japan. I want to see Japan in this time period. It's quite fun that he gets torpedoed into this location with new Bond girls and new kinds of allies. Stuart, at this time, in 1967, this movie was very much showing the West Japan and the culture of Japan. But do you know, historically speaking, this is only, what, 22 years after the end of World War II, what the mindset was towards Japan 
for America in general? Because that's something I do not know. We were still there. We still had military bases there. We were in control and they were rebuilding. I do feel like we were finally getting over the maybe biases that we had had. We had had other wars since then, Vietnam. There were other places to put our hate towards. And I do feel like maybe things were starting to be forgiven as a new generation took over. I do feel like this was maybe the first time we could look at Japan as more than just the aggressors of World War II. In the research I did for this movie, that's one piece I did not get. But the piece I did get that was Bond was huge in Japan and the one thing that constantly was berated on every single piece of behind-the-scenes footage or reading was that the fans and the press would not let up on the set or on Connery and constantly, constantly, constantly beating down and getting in the way. So it's nice that they were opening their doors to cultures from the West for them, and now this movie especially is more of like, hey, check out our friends out here, and now it's time to remember what makes this country different and great as opposed to holding grudges. I kind of got that underneath this whole thing. And of course, this is a British spy. The British don't have the World War II baggage with Japan that America does. And notice Felix is not here. There's no American counterpoint for Bond at all. His ally this time is the head of Japanese security. It's Tanaka. It's Tiger. But what you guys haven't touched on is, yes, we're dealing with the space race, and we're dealing with Japanese relations, but the third thing that this movie's really tying into, and it's the first one I really feel doing it so overtly, is the U.S.-Russian Cold War. We don't have Felix, but the U.S. is omnipresent in that they're ready to nuke. They are ready with their finger on the trigger to nuke Russia and start a global meltdown. Yeah, and those issues were avoided in earlier Bond films. You're absolutely right. And I really liked that kind of commentary in the time. It's like a time capsule that we found about a viewpoint of the Cold War back then. This was post-Cuban Missile Crisis, so we'd already kind of had that. This was also building on that. I'm sure that's a real way to hook in a global audience, because whether you're U.S. or Russia, if there's a nuclear war, it's going to affect everybody. A way to really set the stakes high. You can't get any higher than setting the stakes as it's going to be a nuclear war if Bond doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And we had the nuclear threat in the last one, but now it's a full nuclear war instigated by aggressive Americans. I kind of liked that. I don't know that it's totally instigated by Americans. The Russians are just as sure and just as ready to pounce as the U.S. is going to be. It's instigated by Spectre, and that's their M.O. since we saw them in From Russia with Love. I think about Blofeld looking at his aquarium and watching the two fighter fishes going at it and saying, we're like that third fish that's going to come in when they're tired and win the war here. That's what they've done. They are perfectly happy watching the U.S. and the Russia destroy because they can sweep in and take over with, I presume it's China that Blofeld has aligned himself with. Is it an alliance or is Blofeld a mercenary? Eh, Kind of a mercenary. I mean, he's definitely doing it only for the money. He is providing the service of kidnapping the capsules for the Chinese, but I don't think he has a problem with it. And how much were they paying him? A million in gold bullion? (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. And how much does it cost to build a giant rocket that eats other rockets? He asks for a hundred, he extorts a hundred million out of them, so I think he's thinking bigger, but I agree. His whole space program costs more than what he's asking for. He probably could work with an accountant. If he didn't kill his employees so often, he perhaps (laughs) might crunch numbers better. Perhaps he's making the rest on ancillary licensing from the research, but... 
You mentioned him killing his employees. That was something else I kind of like seeing here. This is such a trope now. I think Darth Vader was the one who became so iconic for killing his failed underlings. But here's Blofeld just doing it with abandon. He did it a little bit earlier and from Russia with love. But here, he's killing people right and left. He did it in Thunderball, too, with the guy in the chair. Oh, that's right. The guy in the chair. That is right. But here, you're right. With the piranha pool, it's a classic trope and i think this is the one that really hit it home the blowfeld spoof clearly is here and the piranha fish here is what i think of classic blowfeld killing in previous bond films bond gets to kill some of his henchmen blowfeld might be unhappy with one and they get the shoe but bond or one of the women gets to have the final bullet here blowfeld really is the one to kill everyone that's insubordinate i think the only one that bond takes out is hans and he does so by yes dumping him in the piranha pool but the two main henchmen are really osato the chemical engineer and his assistant number 11 brant and I felt they were really going for another Fiona kind of vibe here. And she just wasn't as compelling to me on the screen as Fiona was in Thunderball. Also, again, I know, Stuart, it's fun to watch her try to dump Bond out of that plane. And it's kind of fun that watch Bond, quote unquote, seduce her to get out of the situation. But it makes no sense, logically, why she doesn't just pop him if she wants him dead. It doesn't make any sense why she would go so much trouble and waste a plane when she could have just popped him in the head. You know what I mean? Oh, agreed. I can understand that she wanted to prolong it because she wants to sleep with Bond. Every woman in a Bond movie wants to sleep with Bond, even the lesbians. But yes, <laughs> after the bedroom scene, she could have gotten one of her scalpels and done with her. I thought they were setting her up to be a really great character. I thought we had another club potential here when she pulls out that drawer of surgical equipment and Bond is tied to a chair. But yeah, ultimately, the worst she does is light a flare in a plane and jump out of the cockpit. I don't know. I wanted her to have more minutes. It's telling that her best scene is her death scene. Which, by the way, I read that she performed herself, which is nice. I would love to do that. Are you kidding me? That looked like so much fun. Blofeld has this foot pedal and the bridge collapses and you go sliding into the pool. I'd love it. They should have those at public parks and pools. (laughs) With piranhas, too. But all she really does is make Aki jealous. And I gotta say, of all the Bond girls, Aki is the one that breaks my heart here. I feel for Aki. She really gets the shaft. I was so mad at you two while watching this. Because Aki comes in, and she and James have their tete-a-tete, and then Bond goes off and is sleeping with Helga. And I'm like, you guys told me every first Bond girl dies. She lived. (laughs) He goes back to her. They're planning the wedding. She lived. And then they kill her. (laughs) (laughs) It's horrible. Bond is never into her. First of all, it should be said, Bond is never really into her. She's just sort of the girl. He even, like, gets invited to a house and picks a different girl, and Aki switches with her and gives him sizes. I'm like, it's me, James. She is so into him, and James is like, "Uh, whatever, sweetie. You know, you'll do for now. But he is nothing invested. Her death scene, which is one of the big scenes from the movie. It's the one I most remember, where she ends up drinking the poison that's dripping down on the thread that was meant for Bond, Bond wakes up, looks at her corpse, turns to Tanaka and says, you gotta get me to the island. I mean, he's like no emotion to the fact that she gave her life to be with him. It's terrible. And and all he's concerned about is that they're going to marry him off to an ugly chick. I mean, really, Bond's whole chauvinistic act is less charming this time out. Which is strange to say that, because Bond's contact there, his Felix Leiter there in Japan, Tiger Tanaka, mentions 
flat out that in Japan, women come second, men come first. So Bon chauvinistic attitude, it's kind of interesting you are not going with it here in a movie where they tell us that that's the culture of the place. It wasn't charming. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Bond is definitely most literally turning Japanese here and yes, adopting their customs and their whole look by the end of it. He actually gets a Japanese man makeover complete with wig and waxing. But Connery this time watching the way that he treated Aki, his preoccupation with whether his wife was cute and not whether she was a good spy, all of that just kind of made him look kind of like a pig. Sure. I don't know that I agree that this is the case any more than the previous Bond films we've seen, really. It has always been the case. He was originally called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang for a reason. Yes, but these women are his assistants. You know, before it was like some babe that walked up on a beach or a spy who isn't in on the thing with him. These are people that are comparable to him. These are fellow comrades that he should be thinking about as co-workers. I mean, maybe I'm just used to the PC 90s and this decade, but it just seems like a bad way to go about the spy game. So your problem isn't how he treats all women. Your problem is specifically how he treats employed women. Yes, exactly. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I've accepted very early on that Bond is going to get laid a lot and have little emotional connection to the women that he kind of tosses away after. That's kind of the fun of Bond is who's he going to bag this time? I didn't want him to have the girlfriend that he had in the first two movies. But once you introduce that these women are spies that are here to help him, that save his life and literally give their life and all that he can think about is what's next who am i getting tomorrow yeah not cute while you're talking about the character of james bond let's talk about connery's performance very quickly during the course of the filming he announced he was done with the role he was tired of Ah, i had a suspicion yeah i really had a feeling of that too i found that information out after i finished watching the movie because i really felt that it felt tired for him that he was going through some motions while he was in the action scenes and all that but really felt that he was done Did you guys get the same impression? I actually really did. And I don't know. I know movies aren't filmed in order. So I don't know at what point he was checked out. But it seemed to me that the second half of the movie was pretty much where he was done with. The helicopter chase, the scene that you were just talking about, Stuart, where Aki dies, the whole thing at the end. It felt like he was very much going through the motions. Yeah, I do find, surprisingly, when I think specifically about Connery, this may be his weakest performance. Dr. No was a worse movie, but he was much more of a charmer in it. Here, now, we have a virtual remake, and he's maybe one of the weaker things about it. His posture, too, really bothered me. And the way he walked his gait, he felt old and tired. I'm with you. It's only been, what, five, six years since Dr. No? But it looks like a decade. Yeah. And one source I was reading about this movie, they try to play off that he was trying to look shorter because he's trying to play a Japanese man. And that's why he's hunching over during the wedding scene, for example. I just thought he looked old and tired and bored. I didn't yeah. realize that was a character choice. I don't buy it at all. I thought it was osteoporosis. I agree. It did not look <laughs> like someone turning Japanese. 
But he's not a very convincing Japanese man anyway. They don't really pull that off with the wigs. I love that they try. I think it's an amusing conceit, but it doesn't even make sense. The spies already know that he's there. As they're training him at ninja school and giving him his outfit and all, people are still trying to kill him. They know what he's about to do, so why have the pretense of having a disguise? Again, don't ask why. Just enjoy it. These things keep popping up for me too, but I am too having a good time with it. Also at the end of the movie when he's confronting Blofeld, what happened to the Japanese transformation? It's all but gone. Like, it's okay that it's gone. We don't care. We want him to be James Bond then anyway. But you do notice these things, and you try to go with it. You turn off the logical part of your brain. You actually can have a lot of fun watching these sequences in this movie. Yeah, I found that the things that captivated me were, this time, really the gadget kind of stuff. Even in throwaway bits, where a car chase is thwarted by a helicopter that comes in with a magnet, and the bad guys just get dragged out to sea and dumped. That kind of stuff is great. The helicopter, the little Nelly thing that Q brings for him. I love this thing. The story behind this one is that the production designer heard about it on the radio. It's real? Yeah, it's real. And the guy did a demonstration for them and flew in to Pinewood, I believe, and showed the gyrocopter to them, and they put it in the movie. That's how it got in the movie. And so the whole sequence is built around a radio interview by chance hearing it. That's amazing. This thing looked like one of those things you put a coin in outside of a supermarket or something. (laughs) I I just presumed it had to be some phony baloney whatever. I didn't need for it to be real. Now that I know that it's real, I want to know a lot more. But this is cooler than the Aston Martin. I'm with you, Stuart. I was prepared to hate this. I saw them putting it together and I'm rolling my eyes. And then... It turns out I really, really enjoy the entire thing. Yeah. The entire aerial battle. I knocked this film for its effects at the beginning, but they really make a scene exciting with the limitations of their technology. And I'm trying to find a way to complement it without hitting all my problems with it. In the end, it's an exciting scene, despite the technological limitations of making it in the 60s. And it's so impressive that they can have such a three-dimensional aerial battle. But what's not exciting to me is seeing Sean Connery against the blue screen. What's not exciting to me is seeing the models blow up. What's really exciting is the real aerial acrobatics of the real pilots that they're capturing on screen. That's some amazing stuff. And it's amazing photography as well. And you're right. Every time you see Connery, obviously, it's a blue screen. The guy who owns the gyrocopter was actually doing the flying, and he had to. And he was up there for like like 85 hours, something total, to get the shots. The details are all available if you want them. I don't want to go too much into it now, but these things have been around for many, many years. I think the first one went off in like 1923 or something. But this is the most famous one, and clearly they were right to put it in the movie because – we're all on the same page here. That scene, yes, I noticed the models too. But when they blew up, they were stationary. But the scene really does play, and it's fun to watch. And obviously, the the real version of this does not have the missiles attached, obviously, the machine guns. Oh, you shattered the illusion. I know. <laughs> I know. But it's really a lot of fun. They, they put this in, and... I love this sequence. It's one of my favorites in the movie. I'm going to also give props not just to these gadgets, which are great, but the director is really bringing something here, too. I don't think he had a lot of action on his resume when he took the job. I heard he didn't even necessarily want to do a Bond movie, but was convinced by the money and the notoriety it would give him. But I like the way that they're filming this. They're using helicopters a lot for aerial shots. There's a great shot at the docks where he's beating up gangs, and we see it in wide frame, and he's running and leaping off buildings. There's good stunt work, and I'm seeing what's going on, and this movie moves well because the director knows how to handle the camera. 
the fight you're talking about when they do the rooftop shot when Bond tries to escape is my favorite shot in this entire movie. I love they panned back. I love that the scene just kept on going. And then I loved how it played, and I love how it ended when <laughs> the stuntman jumps off the, off the side and into the big pile of boxes under the tarp, and then Sean Connery comes walking on the side. I loved every second of that sequence, but the first part of it with this rooftop shot, you don't see stuff like that anymore, or ever. It's wonderful they took the chance to do that in a James Bond movie. When you have fights in this movie that are intimate and right in your face, you have a giant pan shot on a roof. What a beautiful idea. That was a great shot for this movie. Yeah, hats off to Lewis Gilbert. He also is going to direct Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. I'm excited he's coming back. This is a director who I want to see return to the franchise. But while all this good action is going on, I'm realizing we've lost track of the story here. The rockets, every so often they're mentioned. I'm having a bit of a hard time following all the machinations. I'm not invested in the plot. I'm just enjoying the ride. I lost track of where the astronauts are. Let me follow this straight. So Spectre sends up its little capsule-eating UFO, brings it down to Scary Island off the coast of Japan, and Blofeld keeps them in a prison that's beneath a dormant volcano. We see the Americans. Bond eventually will bust the Americans out. What happened to the Russians? What are these astronauts expected to do? Are they going to be blackmailed? I mean, they can't because I guess they could put them up for auction. That's another way of making money. If you guys want your cosmonauts back, then you pay, what do you think they'll charge? Half a million dollars? In gold bullion. <laughs> yes, as long as it's in gold bullion yes. to a South American bank. But I do feel <laughs> like there are people here. There are lives. Everything's the concern about what will start World War Three and maybe even the capsules. But there are a whole team of astronauts here whose lives are in the balance. And I'm not even sure they get away. <laughs> That's right. They may not. They may blow up. <laughs> I don't even know why you kept them alive. Couldn't they be piranha food? They may have been piranha food. I think the Russians definitely were piranha food. I don't have an answer for you. It's completely dropped. And there's no explanation in anything I've read. But after much ado, Bond finally discovers the volcano base. What a wonderful invention. A base inside a volcano. Never mind the magma. <laughs> Love it. Another brilliant conceit of this whole thing. Yes, the way that it opens up. This set is incredible. Is this real or is this matte stuff? This set is real. It cost $1 million to build this set, which is the budget of the first movie. The story behind it is they were doing location shooting. They saw the volcanoes because they were looking for a castle by the water, which doesn't exist, which is in the book. So they were looking at all these locations, and they saw the volcanoes, and they said, let's put it in a volcano. What can you do it for? And he gives them this budget of, I can do it for a million bucks. And they said, okay, if you knew it for a million bucks, do it. And so this thing had a working monorail. That monorail really worked. The helicopter mm. pad was real. The top where the water moves, real. The only thing that's not real is the outside shots when they're climbing down to the surface to the get into the top. But anything indoors, completely, completely real. Unbelievable set. And this is the one to end all sets. This is, again, what is spoofed, which is people think of this is what Dr. Evil was spoofing. This is it. And my, what a beautiful set. You have been called out, future villains of Bond movies. I dare say you are going to get a better pimped out pad, an <laughs> evil layer than this. I'll look for it. I will be ranking them in terms of who has the best layer. And right now, Blofeld wins with this volcano rocket launcher. It's fantastic. 
It is great. And Blofeld himself, we finally see the man behind the pussy. Yes! And it's someone we've seen before. Yeah, Mr. <laughs> Donald Pleasance, who I mentioned on our Halloween podcast. But here, he is the visage of evil. In those eyes, I see death. <laughs> Again, getting some nice facial distortion stuff going on like he did in Halloween, right? This time with the big scar. A little less wheezy. Yeah, I agree. I can actually understand him this time. And there seems to be a lilt of German in there. I got a question for you guys. Is he a Nazi? Is that what we're meant to understand when we finally see him? That he is a World War II Nazi that has gone into business now as this Third Reich of evil? I didn't see it that way. I hadn't thought about it. I could definitely see it, given that, especially in the 60s, hell, all the way through the 80s, it was like some Nazis are still alive and living free in South America and plotting. But I just hook him as just vaguely European. Me too. I didn't think Nazi. But it just follows its own crazy logic that after World War II, this is what the Nazis would cook up as the spotlight moved to the U.S. and the Soviets. They were plotting their comeback. I I don't know. It really works for me. I was really happy to finally have Blofeld here. I forgot he was in this one. His arrival is well into an hour into this movie. I wasn't sure that he was in this one. So when we finally see the cat... I loved it. And when we finally get to see the whole face, Donald Pleasance, I was over the moon. I could tell something was different because they changed the voice for him. Donald Pleasance doesn't quite have the deep, menacing voice Blofeld had had in the previous ones. But yeah, I'd actually lost track of this movie a little bit by the time we get to Bond versus Blofeld. And when Donald Pleasance shows his face, I'm right there. Now, unfortunately, Mike Myers has ruined Blofeld for me. He is completely just raped any memory of Blofeld being dangerous. All I see in him is the parody. Mike Myers' shadow retroactively is looming so large over this film, but when I can finally shut that piece of my brain off, I love Pleasance's performance here. It's so counterintuitively evil. He's coming across more dangerous and more evil than, say, Goldfinger, who I just felt didn't play evil enough at all. But By the same token, he's not a hulking, monstrous creature. He's the little guy who hires other people to be strong for him. Love him here. To me, it's like Lex Luthor a little bit, that he can't compete with Superman in his strength and all that, and the powers. So he's smart. And even though Superman is smart, Lex Luthor has that as his strength. And Blofeld, to me, is not a physical challenge for Bond. And so he's this amazing mind and has this idea and has this creativity of what he needs to do to take over the world and make the money and all that jazz. And so I also like the small, meek voice to go with it. In the last movie, Casino Royale, we talked about how Woody Allen comes from behind the chair. There's this big, booming voice, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, and comes out to be this nebbish little guy. It's a little bit similar. And it's really weird that movie came out before this one did, and we hadn't seen Blofeld yet. Last thing I'm going to say on this, Pleasance was not the first guy cast. They shot with someone for five days, wasn't working, and they fired him and brought Pleasance in. So we almost didn't even have this performance by Donald Pleasance. Yeah, I can imagine that. He wasn't like a big star at the time. I had actually seen him in a Roman Polanski movie prior to this, and he was in The Great Escape. I mean, he was known, but I think this would have turned him into something else. This is the kind of plum role that makes you into, well, if not a star, at least a known quantity. Does he come back in later ones? Does Donald Pleasance do this again? I feel like he does. No, I looked at him up. There were two things I looked up for this movie, and the first was because I enjoyed Pleasance so much. I had to know if he played Blofeld again, and he does not. The second thing I had to look up is ninjas. 
Is this the <laughs> first real use of ninjas? Because they spend so long explaining what a ninja is. And <laughs> growing up in the 80s, Chuck Norris and his karate commandos, I had to look up when ninjas hit pop culture. This was it. This was the first American film use of the ninja. Yeah, this is the first time martial arts really hit a Western audience big time. Because a few years later, I think, Bruce Lee, right? Yeah, Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon was 73. Yeah, there you go. So uh, this is the first time, Arnie, you're right. I always think G.I. Joe. I had the same comparison, Arnie, in my head. Like, you know, the 80s ninjas were everywhere. But G.I. Joe even had ninjas. So <laughs> they were everywhere. They're omnipresent. And here to see them spend so much time, of course, the showcasing of the country and, and the culture seemed the main tenets of this movie. They spent a lot of time doing that. And I do think that's partly why the fight choreography is so good, is that they've actually gone to Toho Studios. They've gone to people that have been making these movies that nobody in America or in the West has seen these movies, but they're vets at this. And they're professionals. So you're not seeing amateurs try and do ninja fights. They know what they're doing. And when the ninjas come down, it's a great scene. I don't even need Bond in this movie. I want to watch Tanaka take out this volcano base, which is actually kind of what we watch. Bond's preoccupied with hitting the, what does he call it? Exploder button? That's, that's the, <laughs> the climax is he's got to hit the button and blow up the shuttle eating UFO before it gets to the new Jupiter probe. Whatever. That's all fine and well. I mean, aren't even the Americans in that probe? Like, didn't they send it up with Americans pretending to be astronauts? Because Bond almost got into the shuttle. They had knocked out the real cosmonauts and were going to hijack that spaceship. I don't even know why it's still eating the American capsule, but whatever. He blows them up, and so I guess that's going to stop World War III, because if America saw that a Russian spaceship was about to eat their ship, but it blows up before it does... They won't hit the button and start nuclear war. They were real sticklers on their threat. They said, if our rocket is taken, we will start the war. And they really, the <laughs> ship eater shows up and they're like, wait for it. And it opens it more. Wait for it. And yep. boom. Okay, we're we're done. Get lunch. Yeah, it's like the Cuban Missile Crisis all over again. <laughs> it's like, okay, we can do other things now. That's what Bond does in this ending. But that's not the thrill of it. The thrill of it is seeing these ninjas coming down on ropes, dropping into this massive set, having this awesome battle. This is the best climax that we have gotten in a James Bond movie, bar none. You now imagine if this is underwater, how slow it would be. But the, but the amazing thing about this scene is also, this is pre-CGI, obviously. There were like hundreds of people doing that. I can only imagine they cleared out the stuntman ranks to get all the people to come down those ropes. Amazingly huge battle and explosions going off, but it comes off great. Yep. And so Blofeld knows he's defeated. He gets away and he has, of course, a blow up the base lever that he does. This volcano is active? All of a sudden, it's spewing lava. Well, he set it off. (laughs) I don't think it works that way. I don't (laughs) think you can actually hit a button and get lava to come out. I think I remember from some cartoons when we were kids, thinking that, like, you could piss it off and make it go. (laughs) Like, if you put a car in it, it would create an explosion that would set off the magma. Right. Any dormant volcano can erupt should you give it a nudge with a bomb or a grenade or whatever, what have you. An explosive device would be one thing to nudge magma out of a volcano. That makes sense to me. I don't need the Mythbusters to tell me that one. But I do know that's the only thing that makes sense 
because I don't even know how everyone escapes without dying from the collapsing rocks or the magma, the animated magma. You're assuming that they do escape. I am not. Uh, I'm thinking lots of ninjas died in the making of this movie. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of people swimming at the end, but only Bond and Kissy get the sex wrap. Bond has dibs on that. Nobody else gets to be in the inflatable. That's strictly for Nookie. I'm pissed that Blofeld escapes, though. I mean, I knew that eventually we'd see him again, but I thought it was in Never Say Never Again only. I thought that since everybody seemed to know, even before Connery announced it, in looking up the Blofeld thing and the Ninja thing, I read that everyone was pretty much assuming this was Connery's last go-around. It's five films. The fact that He came back many times. They teased us. We didn't know what he looked like. Now we're finally seeing his face. We're finally getting the mano a mano face off between Blofeld and Connery. And it's Connery's last outing. I would have liked to see him triumph over Spectre and the new Bond has a new villain. But no, we're going to keep Blofeld and lose Connery. I think where they go with Blofeld next time, you might be whistling a different tune. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. I don't know where they go with him. I don't remember. I'm just saying... From a satisfying standpoint for Connery's arc, don't you guys think that would have been better if he finally vanquished the villain that had vexed him for five movies? Yes, if they had accepted the idea that Connery was never coming back, perhaps they'd let him defeat the villain that he's been battling for four of his five adventures. Sure, but Connery does come back, and so I guess it's okay that Blofeld does too. I don't know who would be the new threat If he got rid of Blofeld, he is sort of like the guy at this point, the way they've established the world. Yes. And I believe the closure you're looking for, Arnie, will be coming anyway. But they knew Connery was going to go, but they had no intention of ending the Bond series. So while you're making a good point for the closure for Connery, I think they needed something to keep going, the threads. But maybe they weren't thinking that far ahead. The whole Spectre Blofeld thing seems paced like the TV series Buffy. I mean... Every season of Buffy had a new big bad, and just because she defeated the Master in Season 1 didn't mean we couldn't have Angelus in Season 2 and the Mayor in Season 3. So they could have had an even bigger bad, a new bad, either a new leader of Spectre or a whole new group, a whole new startup, take it a different way in the future Bonds. I think I would have liked to have seen this as the season finale of Season 1 of Bond. Let's move on to Season 2. We know it doesn't quite go that way, but at the time, that would have been my instinct. Give audiences a real go out on top. If Connery had announced this before they had started filming, perhaps they would have been that way. But I don't think that they knew until shooting was done that Connery was through with Eon. And indeed, Eon would get him back. Well, Brock, maybe you can clarify. What I read is they knew going in. They'd already started casting. He didn't want to come back for this one. They had to really whip out the paycheck for this one, and they knew. You do know that Connery comes back for Diamonds Are Forever. I know, but I'm saying at the time. I said things didn't work out the way they planned, but... The next guy, I mean, they contract him for seven movies. So they knew going into this that this was probably the last hurrah. They knew going in it was probably. They didn't have confirmation until halfway through the movie. Also, they knew his contract was about up. So they had to get the movie in production quickly. This is also the first time a Bond film had a release date. Very common nowadays to have a release date before a movie script is even done. Back then it wasn't. So Roald Dahl wrote this script in like six weeks or something crazy like that. And so when they put in the little Nelly thing and all that jazz, it's because it was constantly in flux. 
because they had to get this thing started. That kind of shows. Yep. Yeah. Question for you. Is Bond married now? He kind of went through the whole tea ceremony. Kissy makes it to the end. They're in the raft together. As credits roll, uh, you could almost say that he's kind of a married man now. Maybe that's his ride off into the sunset. Kissy rebukes him. He says, we're married. She says, we're not really married. You gave a false name at the ceremony. Oh, okay. So as the submarine comes up and they are rescued by M... We get our credits rolling and our You Only Live Twice song by Nancy Sinatra. Again, that was also played at the beginning of the movie. This song, I'm not crazy about the lyrics, but I love the melody and I love the music throughout this entire movie. It's just so nice. I love the notes. It reminded me of the Verve's Bittersweet Symphony. It did. You go listen to Bittersweet Symphony and then listen to this. I know the song. And the opening of Bittersweet Symphony, yeah, okay. th- I think they cribbed off this a little. No, I don't. But I love this song <laughs> and I do love this music. And I do think this is going to be one of the best ones here. This is top five material, maybe top three. I had a faux Bond theme song cassette. When I watched this movie this time, I was harking back to the knockoff synth elevator music version of it that I played every time I played James Bond. This was always the song we played to conclude our day's adventure. This, to me, is as classic as Goldfinger. I don't think Nancy Sinatra has the pipes that Shirley Bassey does, but I do think the song is just as good as Goldfinger, and I love it. I agree. Just as good as Goldfinger. Actually, (laughs) better than Goldfinger a little. I didn't like Goldfinger. I'm right with you, Brock. I love the melody. I love when it's used as the score. But as soon as those vocals kick in, it's not as bad as Goldfinger. It's not as painful as Goldfinger. But it's certainly not anything I would ever consider good with my musical taste. I'd rather go back to some of those Freddy songs we did in The Nightmare on Elm Street than hear Nancy Sinatra. (laughs) Whatever. I found her performance of the song extremely unmemorable. Stuart, I will agree with you that this score is probably in my top five, if not top three of James Bond. It will be in the running for the number one spot. The score is fantastic. But the song, in the lyrical sense, I don't like at all. And because of her performance of it, I don't really think it's memorable at all. And I think if you have all the Connery songs in a row, the few that there are, yeah, I mean, by default, (laughs) it goes near the top. But this is not going to crack my top five at the end of the series when we talk about top five Bond songs. I think we're on the same page, Brock, because that's the thing is it's neither good nor bad, but it's certainly generic and unmemorable for me. And by the time we reach the end of these 25 films, this one, I'm not even going to be able to hum it. Oh, whatever. (laughs) I I would strongly disagree with you and say that I'm very surprised that Nancy Sinatra was more than a one hit wonder. I always thought of her as the chick that did these boots were made for walking, but she had two good songs. So here's the other one. And I, I really like it. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend You Only Live Twice? Stuart. High recommend, and I'm going to say something that might be considered controversial here. Better than Goldfinger. This, right now, for me, if I were to rank everyone that I've seen, is second only to From Russia With Love. This is as crazy fun as Goldfinger is, but it gives us a bond that does more. There's more for him to do. He doesn't spend a third of the movie in captivity. 
There's a lot of cool tricks here, a lot of cool gadgets. It eclipses the story. The plot becomes almost incidental. I think that might be a problem in a different kind of series. For a James Bond adventure, this is one of the very best. I would definitely say I will see it twice, three times. This is one that I would play again and again. High recommend. Arnie. I was so on the fence on this one. I've said everything I liked about this, but I also said what I didn't like. I found the movie, a lot like the song, to be somewhat generic. I found myself not invested in James Bond's investigation here. And the scenes from this movie, other than being set in Japan, could have been in any other Bond movie with him investigating any other Bond plot. And that's a problem for me. That really is. If I'm going to watch a Bond movie, it should be more than a WWE-type entertainment where it's like great action, who cares if the plot is lackluster or thin. I did like the setting in Japan. There are some high notes, very few of which are truly plot-related. The plot, the pacing. I have some real problems with the pacing of this film. I was on the fence on if this was a weak recommend or a weak not recommend. I'm going to put it with Goldfinger in the weak recommend. I can't give it a strong recommend because a week from now, I'm not going to remember which scenes were in this one. But I'll give it a weak recommend because I really enjoyed the Donald Pleasance bit at the end. I really enjoyed the intrigue at the beginning. I really enjoyed the helicopter fight. The rest, it's kind of there, but it felt thin. I agree with Stuart. This movie's a lot of fun. The problem is I'm having trouble turning off my brain. The best James Bond fun adventures... You don't even care. Now, Arnie loves the more intense plots. Who doesn't? I agree. Usually that's a problem for me. When I watch James Bond movies, though, I always think the plot's secondary to a little more fun and action and adventure. It's more of a fantasy kind of thing. I always prefer James Bond movies that have good plots. This one had a very thin plot, but so much action is going on, they're kind of hoping you don't recognize that. And this time, unlike Goldfinger, I did recognize it, and I couldn't get it out of my head. But I'm of two minds of this one because you also have a wonderful little Nelly gadget-filled sequence. You have that incredible sequence and you have all these trap doors and this big volcano set and all these gadgets and things on all sides. But my favorite death in the movie was the assassin using poison down a string. How cool was that? So for all this grandiose things, these small moments also really work. I didn't like how reactionary James Bond was. He wasn't ahead of the game. He wasn't having all the answers. Sir Stewart, he was more involved than he was in the second half of Goldfinger, but he still was pretty much hiding a lot and just not having any clue what to do next. And he got bested again. He got captured again. And yes, these things happen, but it just seems to me this Bond and this movie just seemed tired. So while I did enjoy the action, I wasn't crazy about Bond, and the plot is weak. So what do I do? Well, this has always been one of those Connery movies for me that I haven't been crazy about. This is one of the movies I watch very, very seldomly. It's the third time I've watched this movie, because I'm not always as compelled. It's the second half of the movie for me. So I will give it a recommend. I really enjoyed myself this time with this movie, but I'm fully acknowledging it is a weaker movie than Goldfinger for me. It's a much better movie than Thunderball, but it's not from Russia with Love. So it's a good Bond movie, but it's not a great movie. So that's my recommend. If you enjoy this podcast, we again implore you, go to our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. There you can find a link to our forums where you can have this discussion with other listeners like yourself. Please follow us on Facebook. Go to Twitter. We're on there as well. Please go to iTunes and leave us a positive review so other fans like yourself can find us. 
And of course, while you're at NowPlayingPodcast.com, check out our archives. We have lots of other stuff there in addition to Bond. Well, guys, I don't think that there is a movie I've been anticipating more to see than what we're going to get next. This is the one I don't remember. I know I didn't want to watch it as a child because it didn't have any of the bonds that I knew, but that's what makes it so appealing now. No Connery, we get the one-off bond. I know I haven't seen this one, and I'm very interested to see how Lazenby can fill these very large shoes. I know to this very day, Connery is still touted as the best bond. And back then, the posters were saying he is James Bond, so I'm really curious to see what they try to do. Do they just try to slip him in like George Clooney instead of Val Kilmer, or do they try to reboot like Val Kilmer instead of Michael Keaton? I can't wait. And to your point, Arnie, while we don't know how Lazenby is going to do, this one is considered to be one of the very best. I mean, I know people that say this is the best James Bond movie. So if we can get something like From Russia With Love, I'm doubly excited. I'll be doubly 07 excited if that's the case. Nice. I have seen this movie. I have opinions on it. I'm not going to tell you which way. I'm leaning on this. We're just going to have to listen next time when Now Playing returns with On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. You'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. That's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. 
I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's its own thing. That sounds like a perfect setup for a plot summary. If you want to get into it, yeah. Who goes? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm very bad at well, par- yeah. transitions. <laughs> well, Arnie, why don't you tell us what what doll came up with in a plot summary? Let me say again. Let, let, why, <laughs> I don't know why I held back that. Loompa, loompa. <laughs> but it, what, yeah, what is what is what is that? Um, And Donald Pleasance. Is that the one you wrote phonetically, Donald Pleasance? <laughs> I'm going to get through this now, okay? <laughs> Directed by... You think you are. Lewis... James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is Arnie, and I'm only reviewing this movie twice. One more time after this sometime. I don't know when. Maybe oh. when I do the video again. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and I love you. I thought that'd be appropriate. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Thank you. you. Done All right. I, I actually, I actually have a different one. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. This is Arnie. And I only live twice. And in my second life, I think men will always come first and women come second. <laughs> you wrote some college papers about that, as I recall. <laughs> Something about... You're cutting this, I know. <laughs> and now we will proceed to laugh for about five minutes at our private joke that we cannot share. <laughs> oh, Lord. that's dead hopefully <laughs> you better hope that one never comes to life Thank you, Stuart. Days I needed that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. All right, where were we? Yeah, we're at the credits. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
I, mean, I haven't even said <laughs> after Lewis Gilbert. Um, all right. Yeah. Okay. Um. 